Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Parma podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. It's really great to be with you all. Um, and yeah, today's going to be a really, really interesting episode. I'm very excited about this one. Um, we're going to be having a conversation about, um, well, the two world wars uh, of the 20th century and grief and trauma and all of that. So joining me is um, my friend um, who's who loves history and is very not about history um, and grief, um, Amanda held Opelt. Welcome to the show. All right. Good to be back. Yeah, it's uh, it's very, very exciting to have you. I, I always love having you on this show. It's fantastic. I can't remember how many times you've been on the show now. It's quite a few. It's be like the eighth time or something like that. I can't remember. So um, anyway. No, I do think you hold the record, though, in terms of, I think there may be a couple podcasts I've done twice. I can't, I can't remember, but you are by far my most frequented podcast. So. Oh, that's, that's nice. That's, that's, that's a great honor. Thank you. Oh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be back if you weren't a great conversationalist. So Thank you. good on you. <laughs> You're always very encouraging. Thank you. Um, yeah. So today, um, when we were talking about episodes that we could do, like, um, this this was this was this was a topic that came up because oh, this I mean there's so much you could talk about but um, the trauma responses of um, our our respective nations to um, World War One yeah maybe how they played a part in World War Two happening um, and also how they affected the second world war and how they and how people came out of the second world war and how they affected decisions in that in that war and there's so much you could talk about so um that's what we're going to kind of explore today um i'm going to try and do it in an hour so uh, <laughs> but it's, it's a really a small interesting topic. It, it, we can be yeah. <laughs> we can be concerned yeah we can do it we can do it, we can okay. do it. yeah okay. so what was it about, what is it about this subject that kind of drew you to this topic yeah. Well, I'll be honest, my kind of my, well, I shouldn't say I have an area of expertise, but um, it's more an area of personal study um, is, is kind of mostly related to uh, bereavement practices just prior to the first world war, how the world war impacted uh, grief traditions and grief rituals. And, and then a little bit, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not a World War I or World War II historian, um, enthusiast, whatever you would call it. Um, but I, I've also kind of looked at how the World Wars impacted um, marriage and family practices and kind of how they shaped society more from like a communal, familial perspective. Just done some reading on that for various research projects. Um, mostly related to my book, The Hole in the World, which is, about, um, you know, the history of grief rituals in the Western world. Uh, and so that I guess that's kind of what drew my attention, because I, um, I kind of set out when I wrote that book, kind of, I guess the underlying mission of it all was to find out what, what happened to grief rituals. Why are there so many beautiful grief tra uh, practices that are, are still embraced and, and practiced today in other cultures, in, in African cultures and Asian cultures. Um, but in the Western world, they have in many ways fallen out of practice, fallen out of use. Why, why did that happen? And there's a lot of answers to that. Um, and we don't, that's not the purpose of this podcast. I think we've talked about that before, you and I. Um, but, uh, but I do see when you look at these points in history, you'll sometimes see um, collective trauma, collective grief in the Western world being a reason why grief rituals die out or fall out of favor. So, you know, probably the best example is the bubonic plague, which we've had a whole podcast on. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. It is an area of interest for me. But, you know, the bubonic plague of the 1340s, so many people dying that there was no time to perform last rites, no time to practice rituals. And and so um, you see similar things happening in the Americas, large uh, smallpox outbreaks that seem to kind of be 
start to erode these traditions around grief. And then certainly World War I, World War I in particular was when I would say kind of the 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 golden era of, of mourning, which many people would say the Victorian era was when mourning was kind of most um, accepted, embraced, and even in vogue. It was World War One where that really, really dramatically changed, um, and and certainly World War Two was kind of well, I'll say the death knell, but that's kind of mixing uh, grief imagery there. So um, that's kind of how my interest in that era. And how people process sorrow, sadness, grief um, was impacted. That that's kind of how my interest came mm. to be. Interesting. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, well, I'm interested because I mean, so you and I are coming at this from different sides of the pond, per se. Yeah. And I'm I don't know how the memories of the world wars kind of occupy the imagination, the nostalgia, the communal memory of UK, of the UK uh, and mm-hmm. versus America. But for our part, World War II in particular is kind of seen as this time, you know, the, 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 the folks that fought in World War II, who, the, the women who ran the factories that supplied the war during World War II, yeah. the Liberty Gardens, the, the sacrifices people made, they were known as the greatest generation. And it was kind of seen as this time in which everyone pulled themselves up by their kind of national bootstraps, did what had to be done to save civilization. Americans were kind of the ones that were like, all right, everybody, we're going to enter the war and help you out because you're all getting invaded. And so we kind of had this hero mentality associated with World War II. <laughs> Sorry if that's offensive to you, James, as a British person. No, no, but that's no, not at all. And then the pro- and and just the fact that all the industry that was drummed up by the war effort was really what pulled our economy out of the Great Depression. And the years post World War II is that idyllic 1950s peace and prosperity. Now, obviously, the obvious caveat to that is that it was peace and prosperity for middle class white society. It was certainly a time of great oppression for um, black folks in this country indigenous folks, you name it. But all that to say, that is kind of how that era lives in the memory of American culture. So I'm curious what it is for you. Well, it's interesting because I think that we kind of saw ourselves as like the moral leaders of the world, I think, after that. Right, because we were the one country in Europe that stood up to Hitler, and he didn't get, didn't he couldn't, he tried to invade us, and he couldn't. We we stood up to him for a year on our own with no help from anybody. Um, yeah. and obviously there's, there's this thing Dunkirk. I highly mm-hmm. recommend people watch that movie as well. It's very, oh, it's pretty historically yeah. accurate. Um, I think I thought was it three hundred thousand men we saved, and it, it, you, know, you had all these, you had all these English, um people going over in the small boats across the channel to rescue people and taking them back. And it was kind of this, that kind of, kind of brought together this spirit of collectiveness and we're all in this together and everyone's fighting, everyone's doing their bit, everyone's like, and, you know, and we can get through, you know, um, we can survive, we can, you know, um, we can do this by ourselves kind of thing. Um, and then that, you know, that that really kind of turned the war because if we'd been invaded at that point, it might have been a different outcome, right? So, um, and so we always, you know, there's this British cultural thing that we're kind of, we're the moral winners of the war. Like, mm. you know, even if we didn't win economically, we did certainly didn't win economically. Um, um, but I mean, even then, out, of, out of that came the welfare state, you know, the NHS, free healthcare, you know, um, lots of that. And those are, those are good things. You know, the NHS certainly, like having free healthcare accessible to all, is a really good thing. Because um, we elected a kind of a left wing socialist government straight after the war, um, and they made those changes to like, which were big cultural changes, like, um, and you know kind of there was after that there was a kind of the political center drifted to the left 
probably for sure. about 25 years, 30, 35 years, sorry, till 1979. Um, <laughs> um, uh, until, you know, Margaret Thatcher and um, I want, and of course, you know, Ronald Reagan got elected that year as well, um, took off, or no, the year after. Um, right. And that's when that kind of, that's what's led to where we are today. Um, but that's a little bit of political history. But um, but yeah, at that point, that I think, but I think what I was brought up in is that we were, I think we kind of gloried in our victory a lot in that we were the, you know, that our way of doing things is the best because we won. That our, yeah. that Britain is the greatest nation in the world because we've never been invaded by anybody. Um, and this kind of sense of, this kind of sense of being better than, than everyone else, like, including America, like, you know, this kind of, yeah. um, like we're, 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 we're the greatest nation in the world. No one's ever invaded us. No one can, no one can conquer us. Um, like, you know, all this kind of thing. And ironically, we didn't, we failed to deal and confront the things that we had done in that period, which weren't so great. Because we had concentration camps, not as bad as the Nazi ones, obviously, like not even anything close, but we had them like, and, <laughs> you know, we weren't, we weren't complete saints, you know, um, and um, Churchill was made out to be a hero, national hero because of his leadership. Um, but at the same time, he did a lot of bad things as well. Uh, he was racist. You know, um, he was, you know, he was, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't a complete saint. Um, you can say that his stubbornness and his character and his leadership helped us win the war. And that's true. Um, but he'd been, he'd been painted as like the greatest Britain of all time. And he was morally pure and never did anything wrong. And, you know, like, and that's not strictly true. Um, but we, that's what we were brought up to believe. But that's the kind of, this kind of veil was put over us that we were, we were Britain. We didn't need anybody else. We were better than everybody else. We didn't need to learn anything. We didn't need to humble ourselves, you know. And that became toxic um, when Brexit happened. That's ultimately what led to Brexit is that. This kind of, we're better than everybody else. We don't need any of everybody else. We don't need Europe. We don't need, we don't need, we don't need, uh, we can do things, every, we can get by by ourselves kind of thing. There's kind of, and there's, there's this element in this country of like anti-European everything. Like somehow Europe is bad or Europe is, and like Europe, it was like, I think there was this thing that, and I know this because I have people in my family who, of an older generation who believe this, that, that like their problem with Europe was, oh, they all got conquered by the Nazis, so they're weak. Right, we didn't get conquered by the Nazis, so we're stronger than them. You know yeah. this kind of mentality of like, you know that somehow that we, we you know we're morally superior to them or better than them because we didn't get conquered by the Nazis. And yeah, I mean it helped that you had a body of water surrounding. You, yeah, kind of helps when you've got a, like when you've got when you're when you're completely you know surrounded by water like it. It's not quite as simple. You know, <laughs> like, um, you know when when you're completely landlocked by you know, by Germany and when Germany's right next to you, um, yeah. oh, um, then it's slightly different. You know, it's not quite as simple to defend yourself in those situations. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, so that, that was kind of perpetuating itself and this kind of, you know, oh, and there are even people who thought, oh, Germany are taking out, Germany want to, want to secretly take control of Europe via the European Union. Like, mm. as in like, what so you you still think that Germany wants to take over the whole of Europe politically like it's the 1940s or something like right people actually believe that you know and it was yeah it was so frustrating because it's like it's completely not true and ironically the one of the reasons that Germany is such a healthy nation now is because they had to confront everything that they had done they had to yeah. confront the Holocaust yeah. they had to confront Nazi Germany and all the horrors of that they had to actually deal with that as a nation and yeah like actually go through that and because they did because they did that collectively and they processed that trauma that horror um they actually ended up a healthier nation because of it um, and yeah. a more mature nation you could argue and so 
they're much more politically stable, they're economically stable, they're like, you know, um, you know, and it's ironic that, you know, that that's happened because, and we didn't do that work. Our two nations didn't do that because we were the yeah. winners. Yeah. Right. So we yeah. didn't need, we didn't, oh, we don't need any help. We don't need to learn anything from this. We won. Um, yeah. And so you could say that a lot of the bad things that have happened in the last few years in our countries are kind of a long, long-term manifestation of not dealing with the imperfections in our nations after that. Afterwards, right? Like, yeah, that's right. Well, and I'm what I'm kind of curious about is because so I mean, yeah, we're bouncing back a little World War One, World War Two. I recognize they are not remotely the same war, fought over the same things, but it is kind of a season. It's you know the first half of the 20th century, um, first I guess really global conflict. Um, mm. I guess the only reason global conflict is even possible is because of advances that were made in transportation and communication and yeah. weaponry, all that stuff. But I, yeah, it's interesting to me when I think about the toll of trauma, because beyond Pearl Harbor, there was no real existential threat to American soil. I mean, obviously eventually um, there was no there wasn't an imminent threat that we were going to be invaded. The, the, the mm. enemy was not dropping bombs on our citizens like you all were facing. Um, it's interesting. I don't know if you've heard of the show Man in the High Castle. I've heard of it. Uh, but kind of an alternate history where yeah. the Axis powers are um, victorious and what would happen if America was now being run by Axis powers, not, you know, the, the, the Germans and the, the, the Japanese. Anyway, interesting. I love alternate history. I think it's so fascinating. Yeah. Um, um, but all that to say, I think, um, so it, it felt like what we ended up dealing with were soldiers returning from war, highly, highly traumatized. And it was kind of the first time that we began to give a name to that kind of trauma shell shock. And then from there kind of grew, obviously, very few resources, not as nearly as accepted as PTSD is now, but it was a beginning of an awareness on that level. Whereas it seems like for you all, there was an entire society that was traumatized, yeah. but maybe particularly in the cities as they were bombed, children were removed to the countryside, all of these things. Yeah, I mean, it was all the cities got bombed, I think it was relentlessly for months, and you were getting thousands of people dying every every day. It was like, um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to trivialize uh, any element of history uh, or any very serious event, but we were having the equivalent of a nine eleven every day for sure for like yeah. two months or whatever it was, three months or whatever it was. I can't remember how long it was, but it was a long time. You know, cities were being destroyed. You know, it was just. It, everywhere it was just rubble you know um fires you know um there was nothing you could do about it literally there was no way you could stop it um in london people basically hid out in the tube stations and the underground stations and just slept there and they, they tried to yeah. stop them but they couldn't because that was the only safe place and you could feel and they could feel the vibrations from the bombs dropping above them like it was you know people lost their homes people lost you know it was just it was it was horrible um it was very traumatic, yeah. Um, even Buckingham Palace got bombed, you know, um, um, which I heard apparently the British government were quite relieved at because then it felt like the royal family were one of us. One of us. Yeah. Like, yeah. And that's actually, a, I mean, as an aside, that, that the Second World War is actually one of the times when the, the nation kind of bonded with the royal family a bit more, you know, um, because of, partly because of that and um, because the king was, the king was out with the with the people, you know, and yeah. um, visiting all their places, their places that have been bombed, and talking to people, and you know, um, encouraging them. And of course, his house had been bombed as well. So it was um, Elizabeth actually served, I think, in the war. Um, probably not in the front line, but she did. So I think it was a radio operator or something like that. So yeah, um, yeah, she was she was actually involved. She was quite young at the time. She was in you know her late teens, early twenties, I think. Um, but, um, but yeah, it was a, that was a major traumatic experience. It was, you know, for our country, you know, it was humbling. Um, 
we lost, you know, in Dunkirk, we lost a lot of men. You know, it was we were we were defeated. Like we were defeated. We were we were we we were gone in there to defend France and stop France from being invaded, and we failed. Yeah, and then we were driven out. You know, <laughs> um, and you know we almost lost. We we almost lost our entire army, but we but we managed to get three hundred thousand men out. Yeah, so we thought we wouldn't get any out. You know, at, at one point we didn't think we'd get any out. We thought it would be an absolute catastrophe if we lost all our men. Then, then we might have had to had no choice but to surrender. So that was kind of that lifted the nation when we managed to get all those people out. Um, yeah, it really did. And then we had the obviously the Battle of Britain, which was really like um, you had a bunch of like twenty, thirty airmen, whatever, who were basically defending the whole nation, right? And it was you know, and there's what there's been movies about it and stuff, and you know, it was really um, amazing, really, because um, what happened is actually that they were just about get they were just about getting to our airmen. Like they were on the verge of beating them, and then they stopped and they started bombing instead. Yeah. So in other words, the Blitz actually, in some perverse kind of way, actually saved Britain because our air force was almost on the verge of being knocked out. And because they started blitzing instead, we were able to regroup and retrain people and get new pilots and build new planes and you know, um, and it kind of saved us. Um, but. But yeah, I mean, it was it was horrible that, and um, it, it took people a while to recover from that. Yeah, I, I'm sure it did. And you know, we were we were we we came out of the war, and we had to rebuild our our country. You know, we had to build rebuild cities. We had to, you know, we um, and we had to you know just rebuild houses. Build that's when council houses started. Government owned houses that people just rented from from the government because people couldn't afford to buy houses, you know, and there was no money. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a tough time after the war. Like my dad was born the year after the war ended, um, and he grew up in one of those small houses. And rationing continued after the war for several years. For how many years? Like, wasn't it five years or something? Yeah, something five. like that. Yeah, because we didn't – because we couldn't – we didn't have the resources to, you know, make yeah. – bring food in or whatever. We didn't have – we had to get a loan from america i think or um, i think we did or from other from somewhere anyway but um it was it was not an easy time um we it took we almost it was almost like we'd lost the war the amount of recovery we had to do to a certain extent um but um i think everyone that's i think and of course everyone had to experience all of that so it wasn't it wasn't easy um um but recover we did <laughs> but i think but I think you know it took all of the fifties really for us to really get on our feet again. Um, by the sixties, I think we were getting we were starting to get there, you know, and the kind of post the post war like baby boomers were becoming young adults or teenagers and stuff, and that's when you had this explosion of culture where um, you know with the Beatles and all of that, you know, like who were born kind of either during the during the war or just before the war or you know whatever just you know and so they came out of out of that and you know we had a whole youth culture in the 60s in this country and that kind of exploded internationally you know um that's when it's funny because the same thing happened in the 90s as well we had a explosion of youth culture here which was when people like me who were children of baby boomers were getting to the same age as my parents were in the 60s right so it was it was like a cycle almost, you know. Um but um but yeah, so I mean but it did change it did change this country completely. But we, we always held on to this kind of we won the war, we didn't get invaded, you know, we're Britain kind of thing. Because I think it's all people had yeah. to hold on to. They didn't have any other benefits from winning the war. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> obviously, obviously getting rid of the Nazis and all of that was, was obviously a benefit, but like I'm talking about direct benefits for us in terms of like finances and jobs and you know our our country. Like we lost a lot in the war in winning the war. Yeah, um, economically, infrastructurally, it was all loss. But psychologically, that's what you had. You had the psychological. Yeah, and victory. and the other thing we lost actually was the British Empire because um, we had to use 
our imperial nations to help us fight the war. And they were, and that court, of course, empowered them and mobilized them and stuff. And and we didn't, we weren't, we didn't have the resources to resist at that point. And so you had, you had like India and Pakistan, and you know, and becoming independent. You had colonial powers wanting their independence and stuff, and we just didn't really have much of a choice but to give it to them. Um, yeah. And that was the beginning of the Commonwealth, and so there was that as well. We kind of. A loss of national pride. Yeah, we, we sure. used to boast about how great we are. We've got the empire, the British yeah. Empire, all over the world. Like you know, and of course we lost that as we lost that as a result of the war. So yeah. we didn't have much to hold on to after the Second World War. Sure. Um, whereas at the end of the First World War, we kind of we still had our empire. We still, you know, we still had all our wealth. We still had all our power. Yeah, we were still very strong as a nation. Um, well, we'd lost a lot of people, and a lot of people have been traumatized by the end of the First World War, obviously, because it was horrible. Um, but as a nation, we didn't lose as much as we did right. in the second, as we did from the end of the Second World War. Yeah, it's interesting. Post World War One versus Post World War Two. Post World War One in America was still a time of great kind of social. I think upheaval in in this country because that was really I, I feel like the height of the labor movement, particularly in Appalachia. I mean, I have more knowledge about Appalachia, the, the, the mountainous region of the United States, where you know coal mining and deforestation were these these big industries. And I'm wearing my Bluefield, West Virginia shirt here. Um, these were areas that were basically their ecological base was destroyed by this uh, new industry of coal and deforestation. So the people were very poor, stuck in coal jobs and trying to unionize. And basically there was a, there is, there was a war in this country that no one ever talks about in the, you know, the 1920s, which the coal wars and the battle of Blair mountain and kind of the, which were basically labor wars and, and coal miners demanding, their rights as workers, rights basically just to be paid fairly. Um, and, yeah. and that was happening all over the country, too, in, in other ways. You know, the, the labor movement and Mother Jones and um, all of these. Um, yeah. the, and so it, it just wasn't quite the same post-war afterglow that I think they, they had with World War II, where it was like, okay, we, we won. We've had, we're kind of economically stable. There's some social stability. Again, um, huge caveat there was that, you know, J Jim Crow and the oppression of, of black people, particularly in the South in the 50s, was egregious. And it was really at a boiling point. But beyond that, it felt like there was just a little bit more kind of social stability. But post-World War One is you've got, um, you know, the roaring 20s. So there's, there's, there's both economic growth, but there's fight for against child labor, fights for, for hmm. labor rights, uh, prohibition, which caused all kinds of issues in the United States in terms of the, the underground crime world. And so that it was just kind of a really interesting time where I feel like America was kind of ironing out some of its, um, how you say, um, economic kinks, like kinks yeah. in the system that were, were creating real problems and, and kind of understanding, okay, this is what it means to be a country where there is true mobility between the classes. This is what it means to, to be, to build a country where there is no aristocracy and there is no slavery anymore. Um, there was obviously Jim Crow still that, that, um, egregious oppression, but we're kind of figuring all of that out in the 1920s. Yeah. So I mean, we had, that time period in between is really interesting to me, and then obviously you have the Great Depression hit mm. in the thirties. Yeah, I mean we had we had the rise of the labor movement as well post war. Um, yeah, I mean now we've got the Labour Party in this country, which grew out of that, which is now the main political opposition in this country. Um, we literally grew out of that that movement. So because in Russia, obviously you had the Russian Revolution and you know Lenin and um, and you know, communism kind of you know taking over Russia. Um, there was a big threat to. You had a lot of monarchies falling in Europe. After yeah, the right. Um, the British one was one of the only ones that survived. Um, and they did that in quite a ruthless way, in that they basically because 
our king was related to the Tsar of Russia. Yeah, and that's right. And basically cut himself off from him and just didn't invite, didn't welcome into the country and didn't just didn't didn't help him at all. And they were kind of kind of you know, and these are the ancestors of the current monarchy. So, um, you know, they uh, yeah, we were quite. Um, our royal family was quite ruthless at that point, um, and a lot of monarchies in Europe fell around that point. You know, and that's that was a lot of self determination was happening in in Europe. Um, yeah, Germany was one of those countries. You know, um, and obviously that, and then and of course that it, it's interesting how Germany ended World War One because they were basically kind of forced to sign all these treaties where they weren't allowed to have an army and they weren't allowed to do this and they weren't allowed to do that. And the German people resented that and they, yeah. they felt oppressed by everybody else. Um, and, of course, that is not – that is fertile ground yeah. for extremists. Um, yeah. And especially when you have an economic depression as well, that makes people more desperate – and people yeah. are desperate, they're more likely to, you know, go to people who maybe they wouldn't go to normally or rationally. Yeah. You know, and that's and you had the rise of it wasn't a surprise really that after that period, you know, the kind of the Great Depression, the economic catastrophe of the late twenties, that you had the rise of like the far right. Because that's what often happens when you have an economic catastrophe. The far right yeah. tends to get more support. We've seen it in the last ten years in both yeah, of our countries, true. really. Like we had yeah. two thousand and eight. You know, it was a awful economic global economic meltdown. And um, eight years later, you know, we had Brexit, and eight, and and we had and Donald Trump getting elected president. So it was, you know, it was. It's, it's, it's funny how history repeats itself, you know, but yeah. but um, that certainly get, helped kind of stir up this nationalism in Germany was was, was that, yeah. like a lot of things, including that. But partly yeah. the response to World War One as well, where they were demonised yeah. as a nation and they were made to do all these things that they didn't want to do and had all their freedoms restricted. Like, um, because people were angry at Germany and blamed Germany for the war. Yeah. Like, um, I actually saw an American historian once say that you actually had an Ameri uh, a European civil war which lasted from 1914 to 1945. Interesting. And that the in-between yeah. in war period was a ceasefire in that war. <laughs> and, he yeah, said, and he then also said that the winners of the European civil war were Russia and America. Hmm. <laughs> no one else. Yeah, like, no one in Europe actually won that war. You know, um, and it's a really interesting take. Um, and I, when I heard it, I was thought, yeah, that kind of makes sense, you know, because the way that World War One ended kind of laid the seed for World War Two to happen, kind of, because of the the yeah. way that it ended for Germany, um, because they felt like like Trump supporters, they felt like nobody was listening to them and nobody cared about sure. them, that they were ignored and they yeah. were demonized as a nation, that they you know didn't have any pride. As a nation, yeah. And so that's again fertile ground for a for a nationalistic leader with charisma to come up and say, "Oh, you know, I, you know, I'm going to bring back the pride to Germany. I'm going to make make Germany great again." <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it's 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 yeah, you know, it's it, it's uh, yeah, it kind of almost didn't make it inevitable, but it, you know, but it was kind of something bad was going to happen, and yeah. Well, and this is why I think telling the truth, like getting on the same page about what reality is and the, the collective memory of a, of a nation, of a people group, is, it matters so much. And what concerns me so much now about like, you know, you've got people coming into schools and saying, you got to take all of black history out of our schools because that's critical race theory. It's like, no, 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 we, we've got to be on the same page about what the story of this nation is and the facts of this nation are that, that we, we displaced and, and murdered indigenous people when we came here that, that, you know, the economy of this country was built on the back of, of black 
slaves that that you know slavery continued into the 20th century through Jim Crow laws and and um, sharecropping and all of these things. But we're not on the same page about like and people can't agree on basic fundamentals of reality, and our memories are divergent in in that way. And so that that's where we we see some real real problems. You know, the Roaring Twenties in this country is seen as this kind of time of like prosperity and partying and defying prohibition. And it's like, meanwhile, like the Appalachian region is being completely ecologically destroyed. The people are rising up to demand fair wages. And literally the U.S. government dropped chemical weapons on Appalachian people. This is all during the 20s. No one knows that. No one talks about that. No one remembers that. But it's like there's there's these pockets of of oppression and marginalization that happen in our history, but we don't remember it the same way. And so mm-hmm. then when we're with new challenges, we can't draw on the same history to guide us forward into mm. the future. And, yeah, um, like we don't talk about the damage of empire building and imperialism. Yeah. School. Well, we didn't when I was growing up. We yeah. Were, we were educated to think this was this, this was this great period in British history where we were where we ruled the world, you know, or two thirds of the world or something, you know. Um, that's what that's what we were educated to believe, you know. That's what that was the general consensus. We were this was our finest hour. We were powerful. We ruled the world. Like we were, we're the greatest nation in the world. <laughs> you know, like um, of course, not not being educated on the horrors of that and the oppression of that and. Um, the injustice of that, and um, you know, and now this is the rise of the internet has been so good because people now, whatever you tell them in school, they can find out the truth. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, you can just go online and Google it, or Wikipedia, or anything. Like you can, you can find out the truth now, yeah. and people, young people especially, will not be denied the truth. Yeah. They will find yeah. out. They won't just. They won't nowadays, especially. They won't just listen to what they're told at school. They will go and find out for themselves, and that is yeah. a good thing because these things are coming to light. You know, and you can't suppress that. Like, um, well, we didn't have that when I was growing up. We didn't have the internet when I was a kid. You know, we didn't. We didn't weren't able to look up that stuff. We just had to believe what we were told, and we were told that Britain is this great nation and this proud nation and we've had this great history and everyone should be grateful to us you know yeah um Um, so i want to ask you i want to ask you about something because this was kind of my niche area of interest for the book but just prior to world war one was kind of this um I keep calling it the golden era of mourning and I'll explain that a little bit more, but, but just prior to world war one. So Victorian era, uh, late Victorian area era, I guess, Edwardian, I had a friend call it, you know, early, early 20th century, late 19th century was when um, these very strict codes and practices of mourning and grief rituals were so in vogue. And, it was a little bit, the, this. it was the case in the U.S., certainly, things like wearing black, things like going into mourning, but it was particularly prominent in Europe and, and, and Great Britain mm. because, in many ways, Queen Victoria, you know, kind of known, I guess, as the widow of Windsor, who was married to the love of her life, Albert. They fell in love. They had tons of kids, but he died pretty early. I think it was at 41 that yeah. he died, I think. Yeah, he died. And yeah. so... Um, then she spent the, she lived quite a long time. I mean, she lived, she has the second longest reign beyond Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, the second. that's right, she does, yeah. She lived a long time as a widow, like from her, you know, early, late 30s, early 40s through to whenever she died, I think it was 50 years or something that she wore her, yeah. her mourning attire. And she maintained um, Albert's quarters in the palace, you know, with his, his shirt laid out and his dressing items all laid out as if he could return at any moment. Some people thought she was a little bit maybe crazy, a little bit had some mental problems because she just couldn't kind of move on from this grief. I think she's just a fascinating character. And there's debate on whether or not she is the one who made mourning practices popular or if it was already starting to be popular. You know, it's kind of like the Beatles. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, did they yeah. did they did they follow the trends? Um, but but yeah, just seeing things like it was this was when 
it also correlated, I guess, and again, you tell me if this is how you remember it in history, but it correlated with kind of the rise of the middle class and, you know, wearing black was something that was not possible for the working class, the the lower class, mm. economically mm. speaking, in, in years past because of sumptuary laws saying only certain people from certain classes could wear certain clothing. Black dye was super expensive and so you couldn't afford black clothing. Well, all of a sudden industry made it possible to get cheap black fabric, cheap black clothing. And so everybody could kind of make this show of their grief and say, hey, I am a rising middle-class member. I can afford mourning clothes. I can afford a large funeral for my loved one. I can, there were all these accessories of mourning and we Mm. can talk, we got a podcast on this on just mourning jewelry that was made at the time made of jewelry that was made of a dead person's hair um all of these um all the money that was i mean more money was spent on funerals and weddings during that time period and again it's just hard to know like what was it that kind of created this that made grief so chic and popular was it really just kind of a way of the lower class rising into a, a growing middle class to say hey we we have dignity too or we can we have um this um uh we we are up and coming almost like a keeping up with the joneses grief yeah. stuff um, but uh, yeah i'm curious is that something that people generally are aware of um within British culture that that was something that was going on because it could dominate a family's life. Like widows were required to mourn for two years for their husbands, which basically meant they couldn't go out. They had to wear black. They had to be hidden away for two whole years. And death rates were still pretty high at that time. So if you lost a brother, if you lost a, well, especially if you were a widow, I mean, you could spend half your life hidden away in your house following mourning protocols. So it's a huge part of the culture at that time. And I'm just curious if that's something that people remember. We weren't taught about it at school, but um, we probably shouldn't be surprising to be honest. But, um, but yeah, I mean, Queen Victoria, yes. Like there's so many photos of her in black. Um, like you say, it's all she wore after Albert died, and it actually affected her mothering as well. She was not a good mother; she neglected her children after Albert died. She was so overwhelmed by grief; she just they they didn't um, they didn't get the support that they should have had from her, um, which affected all of them because some of them were future kings. Um, yeah, <laughs> and so it stunted their emotional development. You know, it was, um, and they they lost a father. Remember, you know, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and you could say that generational trauma kind of knocked on, and it's like maybe it's still manifesting itself. You know, um, that's a whole interesting conversation of of, of that, that because um, some of the ways that the family have behaved since then is quite cold and ruthless and heartless in yeah. a way just to survive yeah. especially after the first world war when royalty was in question like you know if people yeah. were asking that question what's the royalty for why do we have a royalty do we need one yeah. you know that was a legitimate conversation um in europe generally after the first world war right and and i think yeah like that the, the royal family just did what they had to do to survive and they were ruthless yeah um and i think and certainly it was generational because you have Prince Edward, who became the king in 1936, wanting to marry an American. Yeah. And who was a divorced American. You know, and nowadays, of course, that's, well, I say nowadays it's not a problem, but <laughs> Prince Harry exists. Um, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was even more a problem because he was the king. Yeah, right. And so it was like, well, you know, and... Um, and what we found out actually since is that he was he he'd secretly gone to meet Hitler in Germany and yeah that he was that was his those were his political beliefs and um, they were worried about that that's one of the reasons that he was forced from power which is probably a legitimate reason yeah. um, but the scandal of that you know and the brutality of of it and how he was ostracized from his family completely just for wanting to marry somebody um and the queen blamed always blamed him for her father's death 
because yeah. their father was not didn't want to be king. He was forced to become king because his brother abdicated and then had to be king through the war, the Second World War. Took up he was a chain smoker and he smoked more and more and more and more and more. And of course he ended up dying of cancer, right? And um a very young age wouldn't guys that he shouldn't have you know and and thus she became queen when she was very young yeah um so all of that there's a there is a kind of a generational trauma in that family and it probably goes all the way back to victoria um and albert and not dealing with that very well (laughs) you know um and this kind of ruthlessness and coldness that is in is in that family probably comes from has its roots in that period you know, sure. and it's really interesting. I mean, this is this is slightly off the topic, but it's you know, I always find it interesting to look at Harry and who's had therapy, who has done anti-racist work, who has done like he's he's done the work of processing his trauma and his grief. And when I see him interviewed, he is so much more emotionally healthy than yeah. any of his family. Like you can see it in his body language, in his in how he talks, in how he like in. Just everything about you can see he's done the work of healing. Yeah. Like he's actually done some work of healing this generational trauma that he's carried. Yeah. Whereas his family haven't done that at all. And they're still carrying all of that. And and all this goes back to Victoria, who, you know, lost her husband quite young and never really dealt with it properly. Um, yeah. But in terms of the culture, I think I don't really know what the culture was like before the First World War, but certainly I mean, you know more about this than I do. So if that if that was part of culture at the time, I think it it must have come must have had an influence from Victoria because back then the royal family were even more popular, I suppose, not popular, but more influential, I suppose, in culture than they are now. Yeah. Right. And well, I, I, if the queen was doing it, then it's okay for everybody else to do it, right? You yeah, know? exactly. Yeah, and it yeah again, kind of a way for maybe. A rising you know people rising economically from a lower class to middle class to say we can we're like the queen we can be we we, we mourn we grieve just like the queen um and so I'm, I'm yeah i think i have a lot of conflicted feelings about this period in history because if you if you do any research on western grief rituals it's always going to bring you to the victorian era because there's so many strict i mean you know how magazines, ladies magazines from the era had all kinds of articles about how precisely how long were you supposed to mourn for a second cousin, for an uncle, for a for a niece, you know, wow. all these protocols, these strict dress pro I mean, everything from the minutiae of the um the 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 border lacing on your dress to the type of hat you could wear to the type of fabric you could wear. There were these really restrictive, it was just like we everyone had to, I mean Gosh, that was a, a day and age where it was like conformity was a sign of respectability. <laughs> and the, the, the times have certainly changed, but it was like we must conform to prove that we are citizens of worth, of economic worth, of viability, all of these things. And so, um, and, and you know, there was this kind of strange, even even kind of a weird sexualization in some ways of like the mourning widow and how, you know, this kind of damsel in distress who was untouchable, like um, the veil she would wear and kind of... I don't know. It, it's just a really, really interesting time period because I'm, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, okay, but what about people's actual grief? <laughs> like, what about their actual sadness over their losses? Like, are these rituals actually helping or are they placing more of a burden on the family? Are we, is kind of this emerging industrialized consumeristic, I mean, this was the rise of the, um, of the, 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 the magazine, the Sears Roebuck magazine, where you, you know, people were looking at, mag- you know, bu- these are the the catalogs to purchase clothing, the catalogs to purchase mourning jewelry. You know, this is when the purchasing power of the middle class was really suddenly like yeah. skyrocketing. And so funeral directors, morticians were taking economic advantage of these trends. Um, fabric companies, clothing companies, they're all taking advantage of this 
and and it was kind of churning it. They were churning it up, churning up the desire to fulfill these strict ritualistic practices themselves, so that they could profit off of it. So I just have kind of like these strange mixed feelings about yeah. it because I'm such a fan of rituals. I'm, I wish I wish wearing black is the one ritual I wish we could bring back to society now because I love how it kind of showcases to the outside world. Like I am in grief. I am mourning. Like give me the parking space closest to the store. Let me go to the front of the line. I'm, I'm, I'm mourning. I'm sad. I'm, I'm destroyed inside. I love how black clothing communicates that sets the mourner apart. But I also see that it is kind of this um, weird societal expectation constriction on the mourner. Um, But I guess as that relates to the discussion at hand with the wars is that it was really the onset of World War One that brought an end to these practices because it was like all of a sudden, you know, women who were made, you know, women lost their husbands in World War One. Un- untold, I mean, scores and scores of people died in the war, soldiers died in the war. And so these women had to keep the the factories running. They had to keep their families going. They had, they basically were the ones left at home, keeping all of the home fires burning. They could not remain closeted away apart from society. Like they had been before they had to participate in the economy. They had to keep things going. And so these strict two years of being cloistered away, that was done away with, but also it was a morale issue that um, it it was said that the reason black mourning clothes fell out of favor was because there were so many people dying in world war one, that it would have been a total morale killer for the country to see so many people wearing black. Cause it, you, basically the streets would have been filled with people wearing black clothing mm-hmm. um, and for soldiers coming home on a home leave. They would have been confronted by, instead of having this kind of restful uh, mm-hmm. time home for a week, it's like they're, they're here and they're confronted with the, the grief of their nation by seeing all these people wearing black. It was visual representation yeah. of the law. And so they, society just kind of decided together we can't sustain this anymore. We, there's no time. It's not practical. It's demoralizing. Let's stop. I just find that really interesting. Yeah, and that's sad, really, that we lost that a little bit. I mean, yeah, to, to the point where now you have to ask for compassionate leave. It's the opposite yeah. now, you know, it's, uh, which is very sad, you know, um, but it's very capitalistic. You know, when my, when my mother died, my the people the company I was working for at the time tried to make me take compassionate my my compassionate leave as annual leave. Mm, oh wow! Yeah, and my dad put a stop to that very quickly. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, um, and I was very grateful for him for that. But yeah, um, yeah, that's very sad when you lose. And but that's what trauma can do because you want to because you want to hide away from the reality of what you're dealing with because it's too much. Yeah, and it, of course, yeah. like a hundred like years ago, there was no therapy, there was no, yeah, yeah. there was no mental health concept even of mental health. Really, there was, there was no um, medication. There was no like it just wasn't, you know. I mean, like um, I mean, ep- like back then, epilepsy was seen as madness. You were put in an right. institution, like yeah, um, mental health institution. If you had epilepsy, I would have been in an institution if I'd been around then. Yeah, <laughs> um, which is quite a scary thought, but um, yeah, but yeah, you know, and it, it it was just a whole different culture, and like it's it's funny how these little things that happen, these major traumas that we go through, we just deal with them so badly, and yeah. they always have negative consequences, you know, because we don't deal with them well collectively, right. they have negative consequences down the line, you know, I mean. Like, you know, I mean, the, our country was so afraid of going to war. With, yeah. Again. They were so traumatized by the First World War and so afraid of going to war again that they even negotiated a pact with the Nazis to try yeah. and stop going to war because they just they were so desperate to avoid a war. Now, yeah. that looks crazy. on the, It looks ridiculous on the face of it. You know, you're, what are you, who are you dealing with? But back then it was, people were like, oh, we just don't want to go to war again. We don't want to go through this again. We don't want to have to go through suffering like that again. We cannot 
That was so traumatic. People were still people who were still alive who fought in that war. The, the sure, people that yeah. fought in that war were the politicians at that point. Yeah. So they were. Yeah. They didn't want another repeat of that. They just didn't. And you can't blame them for that because it was so traumatic yeah. and it was so painful and it was so devastating that you know like, we, we, we've got to do anything we can to avoid that. But the reality was that that was given the nature of, of Hitler, that was never going to happen because he was he broke every pact he signed. So yeah. it was just no, he would have tried to invade Britain anyway. You know, it wouldn't yeah. have. We'd have been forced into a war, even if we tried to avoid it. You know, um, and America was the same. They were very reluctant to enter the war. They only entered the war after Pearl Harbor. You know, and yeah. um, and again, I, I can understand why people would want to avoid it as a trauma response. You know, let's let's try and avoid this bloodshed again. You know, and, um, but again, it's a result of not dealing with the reality of what you experience and actually working through it and processing it and getting healing from it because it's still affecting your decisions 20 years later. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I think I was watching, you know, like the, the making of the Lord of the Rings movies or something. And I was reading about how when Tolkien was writing Lord of the Rings, he was really reflecting on, you know, kind of the, the advent of, um, of, of modern war the advent of industrialized war the advent of mechanized war and it's not that there had not been horrible bloodshed trauma war loss death in centuries and cultures past and wars past but kind of this large scale how, how human innovation and science and the invention of all these kind of industrialized mechanisms really made countries killing forces at a rate that was completely unprecedented. And so you have everything from, you know, aerial bombardment to machine guns, to trench warfare, to chemical warfare, to nuclear war as a possibility that like our, our own scientific innovation may lead to our extinction which I, to be completely honest with you, I have some misgivings about AI <laughs> and, and all that it's yeah, going absolutely. to do. That's fair. I, I, I'm, I'm with you to a certain extent on that. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's kind of like, gosh, how do you even apply historic old mourning practices to this new form of grief, a grief in which the machines that we've created um, kind of devastate lives at a rate that we can't even keep up with, that we can't calculate, um, devastate landscapes. And I think it was, that was Tolkien's particular um, interest, not interest, but just fascination was like how much we were ecologically destroying the world with our warfare. Now it wasn't just killing people. It was, it was the end of, of forest and the landscapes and um, you know, the coal that fueled the war. It was the end of, you know, the ecological base in Appalachia and, and just all of those things like we're destroying the earth in order to destroy each other is just kind of a, gosh, that's grief. And processing that is a whole other level of trauma, I think. Mm, I agree. Yeah. I mean, this whole conversation always leaves more questions than answers, doesn't it? In yeah. A sense, yeah. You know, um, where are we going and are we going to learn from history or, you know, are we doomed to repeat it? You know, like, you know, the lesson yeah. I keep I, I keep having to learn is that we don't seem to learn from our history, and and that's right. a result of not confronting our trauma and not confronting our grief and not confronting collective grief and trauma and and and, and facing our our history and the reality yeah. of our history, like yeah. and that's what we need to do to be healthy as a nation, as both yeah. of our nations. Like, Tell um, and as I said, Germany had to do this. Yeah. After World War Two, and they're now a much healthier nation and and more stable and um and economically prosperous and you know um more peaceful nation than 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 ever before. And so that maybe that you know maybe we can learn from that. Maybe we if we did the work that we should do, it would be painful, but it would it would change the world for the better. Yeah. Especially if it was yeah. America who did it, because. America is one of the most powerful nations in the world. And, you know, if they could learn to heal and grow as a nation, that would be wonderful. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. And I think if I could just 
leave with one thought at the end of this conversation. It's that like, yep, large catastrophic events in history sometimes um, leave us bereft of our rituals. They are the reason that rituals fall out of favor and maybe that's okay. Maybe we adjust, um, but we can't, we must replace them somehow. We must find a way to say, okay, even if the old ways of mourning are no longer viable or no longer relevant, what are the new ways in which we're going to process this this loss and process this trauma? Um, and we've got to do that after COVID. You know what I mean? Um, the, the funerals, there was a whole two-year season almost where there were no funerals, live funerals, or there were very few, or it was, you know, it was it was done on a much smaller scale. And it, I'm, I'm thankful to see that it seems like we are recovering the practice of going to a funeral. Um, but some of these other pieces we continue to lose. Um, and so it's just important to remember that we, we've got to recover them or reimagine them if we're going to process what we've lost. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I yeah. agree. Thank you. Um, yes, I always love these conversations with you. So uh, you can, where, can, where can people find you online? Yeah, I'm online. Um, Amanda held Opelt on Instagram and Twitter. And that's my website too. Amanda held Opelt dot com so you can find me there fantastic <laughs> fantastic and uh yeah. i'm sure we'll have you back again sometime there's so much there's so many things we could talk about so yeah. um yeah. thank you so much thanks for the insight it's always interesting to hear perspective from the other side of the waters yeah. so yeah no I'm, I've, I'm i'm fascinated by your perspective as well so yeah thank you um and uh thanks for listening everyone <laughs>